0: Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can gather together and open up Acts again and rejoice together about your, the salvation you provided provided for, for all of us and for what you've done in the past that we can learn from, such as in the case of this jailer in Philippi. Help us rejoice together with all who know you and come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we talk about this conversion, and I'm back on the the final slide that we did last week, I will will emphasize a little bit how Luke uh, emphasizes things and helps us understand the point he's making in any given incident by repeating themes and sometimes using key words from the Greek, which I'll show you, they go back to the very beginning of Luke. The more I study and teach from Luke Acts, the more amazed I am at the skill of Luke as a Holy Spirit inspired author and his ability to reveal the truth using the Greek language and his skill as an author. So here in Acts 16, last time we were, we ended with this slide, Acts 16, 27-30, and when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights, and which would have been torches, by the way, and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" Now I talked about that last week, and so they had been singing hymns, probably psalms, and the, it said the prisoners were listening. Now they had the earthquake, and they were all loosed. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but the ancient people at that time did think that earthquakes were acts of deities. And in some cases there were documents that have been found where they thought that certain gods were angry about certain things if there was a natural event or a calamity or whatever. And so they would be thinking that way. And so here are these um, yeah. apostle or the apostle Paul and Silas, Singing hymns and praising God and people, even though they're prisoners and they've been unjustly treated, he heard this. And then there's this supernatural event in his mind. The earthquake would be that. And they're all loosed. And so his thinking is all right, I'm a dead man. And not only that, the Romans aren't going to just uh, throw me in jail for. failing to keep these prisoners secured, they're going to torture me. And the Romans had means of torture, such as crucifixion. They were long, slow, painful, miserable, and a horrific way to die. So the guy pulls his sword out and thinks, I'll get this over with quickly. And so here you have a man ready to kill himself. But... (coughs) Paul intervened and they got some lights got outside and then he asked what must I do to be saved sozo in the Greek means rescued from serious peril this man was in a lot of peril whether he understood fully that the wrath of God was his peril he was probably thinking the wrath of some deity Because otherwise, why would all this happen? Uh, We have a request for Mike.
1: It's interesting that um, when Paul and the chains fall off and the door to the prison opened up, that they just stayed there. They didn't and, run away. Yeah, they didn't run away. Anybody in their normal mind would have bolted. Yeah. And, and here, uh, probably under God's providence, they, they were for some reason, they just stayed there.
0: Yeah, I think part of the reason, uh, thank you, good, good observation. I think, I'm pretty sure part of the reason was that they'd been singing these hymns. Because normally when you're in prison, you don't know what they're going to do. You're not going to start singing praises of God or Singing psalms of deliverance, or whatever it was they were doing. And uh, so there was some attention to that, and this idea that earthquakes were acts of deities was already in the background. So I think they wanted to stay and find out what was going to happen. Okay? Because there was some kind of expectation that this was a supernatural event. And so they didn't run away, they didn't escape. And they probably looked at Paul and Silas as important people because they're the ones that had been singing the hymns even while they were chained up as prisoners. So that got their attention. What can we learn? Are there any applications? I got to. I don't want to spend too much time because we covered this slide last week. But it certainly it would be important for us as we live in a perilous situation. And if we're in traumatic times, which we are, Christians need to not lose the joy of the Lord. It is a witness to unbelievers when Christians bear up under trial, when they have the joy of salvation, and they're knowing that God is sovereignly at work no matter what happens. Having that, is a witness and it's a testimony I think it was in the case of Paul and Silas. So there is uh, an application that we can make. And uh, I don't know if i mentioned this but let me cite Tannehill, Narrative Unity of Luke-Acts which I read back in the 90's when I was in seminary and I still think it's one of the better uh, books about Luke-Acts that's out there. And uh, he is the one that really helped me see how Luke plants seeds in Luke that come to fruition in Acts and set themes that help us understand meaning. So let me uh, talk about echoes. Um, echo would be something that happened and you hear the echo later. Acts 2, Tannehill, Dr. Tannehill says this, quote, the similarities are not limited to healings, imprisonments, and releases. The description of the jailer's conversion echoes elements of the first conversions in Jerusalem, says Tannehill. The jailer asks, What must I do to be saved? 1630. A question that combines the question following the Pentecost sermon, Acts 2.37, what should we do brothers with peter's reply acts 2:20 be saved from this crooked generation continuing with daniel the word the word baptism and faith are mentioned in both places 2:41:44 and 16:31 to 34 so there's an echo of acts 2 Continuing, less expected, therefore more suggestive of a special connection between these scenes, is the reference in Acts 16:34 to the jailer preparing a meal and exulting. I'll be, we'll be looking at that verse today when I, when I get to that part. Continuing the description of the jailer's joy with this unusual and strong verb. Uh, And then he gives some links for that shoes, which I will do myself. In the Luke and verse, birth narrative, uh, and we'll look at that, in both the early Jerusalem church and then the jailer's house, this exaltation accompanies a meal that is a celebration of salvation. Luke is telling us something. The, the, The Messiah has come. God has intervened in history, and the result is joy for those who love him and believe in him. And then, of course, judgment on those who reject him. And there are meals that are previews of Messianic salvation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are meal scenes throughout Luke. And then sometimes, I wrote a whole article on this um, about dining with the king, is the title of the article I wrote. And I traced it all the way through the Old and New Testaments. Whenever there is a meal, a connection with salvation, some are saved and others are judged. There's a dividing. Okay? The, the Last Supper, salvation comes to the eleven. Judas runs off to to uh, betray the Lord, and then he and eventually dies. See this with Mordecai and and, um, Haman, and so on. We we have these scenes, and so there's a reason for this. So we can learn this. See, we ask different questions than what Luke is telling us. In his writing. Because our questions come from church history, not from Luke, Acts, or from the Old Testament. Well, did, did they baptize infants, and are you saved if you're an infant when your parents get saved? That's what everybody wants to know. Well, that's a, well I, I, what, how should I say this? If all you knew was the Bible, that would be a stupid question, you never ask it. Well, it's not even on the table. They're not even talking about that. They only want to know that because of Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism and different debates that happened in church history. But that's not the point. But we'll deal with that nevertheless because we can learn from what we do know. But the point is salvation comes, there's rejoicing, there's a meal, and there's salvation. So, yeah, yeah, my, there we go, my slow computer here. If I would have known COVID was coming, I would have bought a better computer. I, didn't, I never heard of Zoom when I bought this computer, and I bought the cheapest one I could get. So it is slow. Here we are, Acts 16, 31, 32. And they said, okay, here's the answer. He asked, what must I do to be saved? Like you did at Pentecost. What, what what should we do? What should we do? Uh, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now, I always point this out. I made a point years ago. Some people were accusing me of not preaching against sin. And uh, I told people about the imperatives in the Bible, what we must do, what we must not do. And I made a promise that whenever I find an imperative in the Greek, I will tell you what it is. Okay? So you know what God commanded. What they were really saying was I wasn't preaching human binding and loosing about what They didn't like. Because they weren't satisfied with what the Bible said about sin. They wanted their own definition. So we dealt with that. We're going to go by Scripture alone. Not by the thinking of man that wants to... Everybody wants to be a lawgiver. You know why people want to be lawgivers? Because it's the most powerful position you can have. You're like God, and everybody has to cower around you because you made a law. We see that now in politics, don't we? People are oh, we got a chance to be lawgivers. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. You can't gather, you can't eat, you can't go to the restaurant, you can't do this, you can't do that. Why? Because there's the power. Watch the little ants scurry around while we do it. Listen. Christian pastors aren't lawgivers. They're explaining what God has already said. And not only are we binding, but loosing. There's a, such a thing as Christian liberty. we got to affirm those categories. That's that one. So here, believe is uh, imperative. This isn't a suggestion. It's a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus And you will be saved. Now, when it says, and your household, some people, because of things that have arisen in church history, say if the head of the household is saved, then everybody's saved, no matter who they are. And so then they have this doctrine of household salvation. Now, I covered some material one time in the Sunday school where I went all the way through Acts about. Baptism and it's linked to faith. But the fact is this, that we know from the New Testament, and particularly Luke-Acts, faith, faith in Christ that trusts him and him alone is something that a person does. Okay? And we reject modern ideas like new perspectives in Paul, a group salvation. As long as you belong to the right group, you're saved. And they want to put the individual as not important. But we know from the New Testament that God deals with both groups and persons. And the church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and the apostles and prophets, the biblical ones, as the foundation, built up, as blocks so who are the building blocks of the church? Are they not believers? So are there people who we think were of us, but then turned out they weren't? Yes. yes. Are there Judases? Yes. Judas was one of the twelve, but he ran away. Was Judas one of the building blocks of the church? No. He had no part in it. What about Simon the Sorcerer? He believed. He was baptized. But what happened when he told Peter he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit? He said, you and your money can perish. And then know what Peter said to him? This is on Acts, so we're staying on topic. You have no part nor lot in this matter. Now, lot is a word that shows up in Ephesians as well, it means an inheritance. You have an inheritance because you're part of the family. Simon the sorcerer appeared to be part for a short time, but then he was gone. Now, looking at this, what Paul is doing is, is just continuing the gospel message of the universal call. His household are commanded to believe as well. They may or may not. Some of them may, some of them may not. Maybe they all will. Or maybe all of the rest of them will say, you're nuts. That goes on to this very day. We still have people who come to Christ whose wife or children... Or relatives or everybody they know says, you're nuts, <sniffs> go away. Don't tell us any more about this. You're out, you're out of your gourd. There's no guarantee or promise in the Bible that if one person saved, all of their friends, relatives, and everybody will be too. That is not a biblical promise. Uh, what is promised is if you will believe, you will be saved. Yes. Rich?
1: Yeah, a couple. I got one in Paul. Yeah. Well, anyhow, you hit a nerve. You just nailed something big when you said the curse of the lawgiver. So it's kind of beep, beep, beep back up about two minutes. Okay. But the curse of the lawgiver, I think, is really, really significant. And I think it has to do with participation with God. We so desperately want to participate with God when God says, no, I'm God and you're not, and my glory I will not give to another. And Isaiah says that. But it goes back to the Garden of Eden when Eve wanted to participate with God by adding to him his thou shalt you not can't even touch. touch.
0: Yeah. Thou shalt not touch. He became a lawgiver. Um, good point, Rich. That's very good. <laughs> Let me say this. I'm writing an article right now about a book that commands people to have liturgies and creeds. Okay? They're saying it's, it's an imperative. So I read the book, and it's full of logical fallacies and unbiblical claims, which I'll unpack and then refute. But here's the, one of the things in, in the, the article I'm writing. Do you know what binding and loosing is? Okay, it goes back to Matthew 16 and 18. Whatever said to Peter, now, of course, the Pope, the Catholics say, well, he was the first Pope, which, of course, that's anachronistic. There was no Pope back then. Did you know that? Good, I'm glad you did. Okay, whatever you bind uh, shall, literally in the Greek, having been bound in heaven. In other words, Peter, and then in uh, the next time it's mentioned, It says you, plural, so it means all the disciples. So the apostles, Peter and the others, and ultimately Paul's one, will speak authoritatively for God about binding and loosing. Binding and loosing means forbidding and permitting. So the Jewish leadership in the time of Jesus were the ones who did the binding and loosing. And their documents got longer and longer as they made more laws. They went way beyond Moses. And then they wanted to bind by defining things. So thou shalt not work on Shabbat. Well, then they would even define, well, how far can you travel before you broke the commandment? How big of a stone can you lift? And so they, according to Jesus in Matthew, now Matthew's where binding and loosing come up, they tie up heavy, tie up. Bind and loose can also be tie and untie. Deo and luo in the Greek. Um, They tie up heavy loads, in Matthew 23, and lay them on men's shoulder, but they themselves won't lift with even a little finger. Then there's got to be more than just what they were doing now. It's kind of human nature for people with power. Have you noticed in the news, the ones who are making the laws, you, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then they do do the, uh, they go do whatever they want. That's right. yeah. Well, I can do whatever I want because I'm the law giver. Right. I'm not even going to exercise my little finger. Yeah. But what we need to be careful, we don't become like that. I don't say that just to make us more angry. We already are, but we got to be careful we don't become like that. Okay, because power is uh, an elixir, and pastors should not become like that. Pastors and and I've been in legalistic church for it. A pastor wants to be the lawgiver. You do what I say. So, binding is forbidding, loosing is allowing. Yes, uh, Eric. Yeah.
1: Actually, this might tie in even with with what we're talking about. I was going to comment on, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus. People like to go through acts and they like to take one sentence and say, oh, you just have to have mental assent and all of that. But believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus, one of the first things he said is repent and believe the gospel. If you're going to believe in the Lord Jesus, you have to understand and believe what he taught. And that's where, in other words, it's repentance and Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. It's all comprehensive. And people make big mistakes when they just
0: take a little, yeah, go ahead. Uh, While I'm commenting on what you said was an astute reading, go look at Acts 1-8, look that up. And uh, that's a good point. So does this mean to be saved, all you need to do, we're saying, you have to believe. Does that mean you give mental assent? Or does it mean more than that? Well, then we need to look at the rest of what's said in Luke 24. Luke acts, remember, two-volume work. One of the biggest errors in biblical interpreting, interpretation history has been to act, act like Luke is one thing and act something else. It's a two-volume work. Themes are started in Luke, aren't finished till Acts. In Luke Acts, Believers are the ones who follow Jesus Yes, and, and listen to his teaching and hear him. Okay, listen means to hear, take to heart. Okay, and one of the signs of true conversion is this desire to follow Jesus. And I was mentioning, we were talking before Sunday school, the, the, the guy from the Gerizines who was delivered from 2,000 demons, He was saved. How do we know that? Because he said, "Um, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, no, go tell your own people the mighty deeds of God. And so the mission to the Gentiles is foreshadowed in the Gerizim demoniac. And then in Acts, the mission is more explicitly stated to go out everywhere with this message. So believe means that, that you're willing To believe the truth about Jesus, who he is, okay, the the virgin-born Son of God, the creator of the universe, his sinless life, who he's revealed to be in the scriptures, particularly in the Gospels and Acts, what he did to demonstrate who he is, the mighty God incarnate, his substitutionary atonement on the cross, and then his resurrection from the dead and the need for for us to trust him to have his righteousness imputed to us. So all of that's there. Now, in all languages, you have figures of speech called synodoky or sometimes metonymy where a part designates the whole, right? And Eric and I have used different illustrations that we do that just to save words we use the illustration somebody comes up with a new car oh i see you got new wheels well you, unless you somebody got new wheels for their truck or car it means they got a new car Such so a just synodoki. so believe is is just one word it's a command but it's more; it implies all these other things that have already been said in Luke Acts about Christ and who He is and what it means to be a disciple. Luke doesn't repeat the entire thing every single time; it would be a, a rather tedious read if that's the way it was, and there was limited amount of space in the parchment. So we have here a call to repent, call to believe called to be a disciple. We'll see that as we go to the next verse. And so it isn't just middle ascent. And then notice and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. So Luke doesn't tell us the content, but here's what we're expected to know and understand. In certain cases, key places, Luke gives you the whole big story, or a lot of it. And then later, it's implied that that was also there. He doesn't repeat it every time. For example, one, Acts 2, there's more content to Peter's sermon on Pentecost. There's more proof. There's going back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at all that if we get to it today. In Acts, or excuse me, in Luke 13, there's a whole bunch of content to what Paul preached in the synagogue There. The reason for that is so that we know that's what he taught when he preached the gospel. You find that in Acts 13. So in this little statement, he spoke the word of him and all who were in his house, assuming they weren't little babies that don't even know how to speak yet. Right? So they could hear and understand this content. The content would be, for example, what's in Acts 13 when Paul spoke and elsewhere. And so the readers of Luke Act know what the content is. And the Lordship, notice he says believe in the Lord Jesus. So that idea is also included in the imperative command. Believe, and there's an object of your faith. The Lord Jesus. Well, that was um, something preached earlier by Peter on Pentecost. Let's turn to that. Acts 2, 22, to 28. And so we can rightly know that when he spoke the word to all were in his house that this sort of thing was included. Luke expects that. See, some people want to shoehorn their uh, theology into some proof text. I've had some debates and some people get very angry. They're saying that if you say any more than just belief as mental assent to facts about Jesus, you're teaching salvation by works. John MacArthur refuted that idea, and boy, do they hate him. No, it's just it's just mental assent to facts. Nothing more. You can't add repent. Repent is a work. Uh so on. Well, it's not a very good read. It's, it, let's say it charitably. That's not a very good reading of Luke X. All right. Now, let me read this here to you. Acts two twenty-two through 28. All right. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, this is Peter, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. So that's okay. Who he is, what he did, this Jesus continuing to uh, explain this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now we have theology there. All right, this don't believe the people say so you can't teach theology. Did you got to have every a Cliff Notes version of everything? Peter taught profound theology at Pentecost. This man delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, the, the Jewish audience at Pentecost, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So here we have Peter indicting the sin of both the Jews and the Gentiles. You rejected your own Messiah killed him, even though it was God's plan. And you did it by the hand of godless men, the, Roman, the Romans. So in Luke-Acts, not, it's not anti-Semitic. Both the Jews and the Gentiles are wicked sinners. And both the Jews and the Gentiles need Christ. Alright? There's no distinction in that sense, although there are still promises to the Jews in the future. Okay. Delivered up according to the divine plan, definite plan foreknowledge of God. You crucified, killed by the hands of the lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, quoting David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced my flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor let your Holy One see corruption you have made known to me the paths of life you've made full made me full of gladness with your presence now again there's some themes in Luke that are pulled out here but not allowing the Holy One to see corruption is proof of the resurrection of Christ on the third day, because they believe that on the fourth day corruption set in, and th- that was you 're really dead that 's really bad. remember uh, lazarus what was the fourth day and he stinketh okay so we have um, so we have this robust understanding of the truth that was preached. And so then when Peter preaches later, and then we could, and I won't do it, but we could go into Acts 13 and see all Paul preached, the idea that he spoke the word of the Lord to him would imply that these details are there as needed and as they asked. Okay? So this isn't a proof text for household salvation any more than it's proof text for mental assent only salvation. It's a Demonstration of salvation in the same manner that we see it elsewhere throughout Luke Acts. There's a, a, a robust and full understanding of Christ, who He did what, and so on. And this was taught. Be, that's all that Luke has to tell now because we've already read the content. So uh, the call to faith in Acts two led to the question: What shall we do? leading Peter to call, to give the call to salvation, Acts 2, 37 to 42. I'll read that. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. By the way, how do we know a true work of the Holy Spirit is going on? Christ is preached. He, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said in John, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So there's an echo of Acts 2 here in Acts 16, showing that the same thing's going on for this Roman uh, situation in Philippi, the dead in Jerusalem. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin, You'll receive the gift of the spirit for this promise is for you, for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. Yeah, there's the internal call. Good point. There's the internal call. The external call goes to everybody. Also called the universal call. Repent and believe the gospel. Trust in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Everybody at Pentecost heard it. But some were cut to the heart. Not all, but some. A representative group from the various nations there. And they heard the word of the Lord. And those who respond and believe are the ones who are to be baptized. As a outward demonstration of the inward faith that exists in Acts 2.40 and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourself from this crooked generation now this is a prophetic pronouncement upon the state of the Jewish nation at that particular time because it was in Luke that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple this is got to change. You're going to need to come to Christ because you're living amongst the crooked generation. It's not anti-Semitic because Luke-Acts holds out the future promise of a restored Israel. And then verse 41, For those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Acts 2.42. So, dear saints, what's happening here in a microcosm is reminding us of the big picture, when it doesn't get filled in every time, but it's implied to be there. The same thing's going on in Philippi, only it's just jailer and his family and Lydia. And whoever else may believe there. Lydia's already telling people about Christ. Is there any better evangelist than a new Christian? They go tell everybody. I know I did. Yeah, immediately I was telling everybody. Because I couldn't I couldn't wait to tell people. I told all my best friends. And then I we had a little Bible, I showed you a picture of it. We had a coffee house and we shared Christ and corner of the town where I grew up, and my brother Wayne was one of our first convert. He's still serving the Lord, Wayne is, and so on. So that's how God works. See, the computer does work. He just has to sit and think for a while. Rejoicing in salvation. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds Remember, they'd been beaten with rods. Amazing. They were beaten with rods, chained up in jail. They're still singing hymns of praise to God. An earthquake releases them. They tell the gospel to this guy. And now he's going to... They were wounded. They were bleeding. They were beat up. And so he um, washed their wounds. He was baptized at once. He and all his family, but these are the same ones who had believed and had been taught. All right, so this is no proof text for some doctrine that showed up later in church history that they weren't even thinking about back the, at this time. And then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And by the way, that household may have included slaves. And they'd be part of the household and set food before them, so they have salvation, they have baptism, they have a meal. Echoes of Acts 2. God is doing the same thing again. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So they're having a rejoicing, and it was due to the presence of salvation. Now, this uh, f- word for rejoice is not the most common one, but it 's found seven times in luke acts and that 's one of the things Luke has a robust vocabulary and in Greek, and sometimes he 'll use words that aren 't that common elsewhere, and then repeats them and that helps us understand a theme so in Luke acts rejoicing. Is a sign of the presence of messianic salvation, and it starts with the birth narrative. Angels rejoice, shepherds rejoice, people rejoice, because God's at work. So they heard the word, they believed, they baptized, they were baptized, and they rejoiced. Now. Um, uh, <coughs> The, the word for for the rejoice here is agaliasis. Agaliasis. The simple word rejoice is which is more common. But Paul, but Luke here uses agaliasis, and that's what makes it kind of a unique word. Yes. <clears throat> okay. So
1: we have people that say they believe in the Lord Jesus, that's not salvation. We have people here in the household that are being baptized. That's not an indication. Of, no, here it is an indication. Okay, well then my You're question... Accompanied is, accompanied with rejoicing. Okay, then my question is, going back to your uh, uh, article on dining at the king's table, mm-hmm. when there is... Uh, uh, salvation and judgment. Mm-hmm. What is the judgment here?
0: Well, it, it's not mentioned here, but there are many people in Philippi, what we'll see, and we haven't got that far yet, but what's going to happen is they, the civil authorities want them out. They don't want anything to do with it. So there's your judgment. But what, And the judgment comes when they say, okay, you can go. Really, they say you can go. And Paul wants to make them come and tell him. Okay? So the civil authorities, uh, he'd been beaten uh, unlawfully because he's a Roman citizen. They didn't even ask if he was a Roman citizen and beat him. And they could treat people however badly they wanted to unless they were a Roman citizen. Then they had some rights. So Paul is, when they're going to let him go, he says, no, I'm not going. Make those people come and tell me that I, that, I, that, that I have to go because I was mistreated without due course of law and I want them to own up to it. So there's your judgment. And so they, they knew they could get in trouble with the higher-up authorities. They wanted Paul out of there. So that, so that happens in a bit, all right? Good question, though. Very good question. Now, let's look at some... I love Luke X. You, you probably know that by now. It's so cool to see these things. Let's take a little uh, look at some of this. Um, turn to Luke 1, 14. let Let's go way back to the beginning of Luke X. Luke 1, 14. When God's saving work comes on the scene of history... There's joy and rejoicing. So this starts real early in Luke Acts. Okay, Luke 1, 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many people rejoice at his birth. Now here we have the Greek gladness, kara, and then agliasis, rejoice, which is our word, here in Acts 16. Now this was spoken, remember uh, Elizabeth, Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist and then Mary. So this rejoicing comes early on all the way back, the first case, Luke 1.14. At the birth of John the Baptist, you will have joy and gladness. It's a preview of salvation. Look at, why you're in Luke 1, Luke 1.44. Luke 144. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here's this (coughs) agaliosis again. And the baby in Elizabeth's womb was John the Baptist. He's leaping for joy before his birth. No, you may say, well, babies do that, they kind of kick around. And uh but Luke is telling us this for a reason. Because John the Baptist is going to be the prophet who would have the role of Elijah to announce the coming of the Messiah. Hallelujah. So there's rejoicing even in the womb, using this word that uh, it's used seven times in Luke Acts. Um, Let's look at a couple psalms just to see where the Greek translation of the psalms use the same word. Psalm 50 and verse 14, uh, which would be our numbering, the Septuagint uses a different numbering system. It would be 51 13. 51, no, 51, (laughs) 14. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Psalm 51. Subtract one, then you get the Septuagint. Or the other way around. I keep getting that confused. David after confessing his sin, tells God that God delivering him from his blood guiltiness would cause joy and joyful singing of righteousness. So here, all the way back in the psalm, you have this joyful singing on the occasion of the forgiveness of sins now in luke x we have joyful singing at the occasion of the coming of messiah who brings forgiveness of sins and so this rejoicing using this very unique word which is used in the old testament in the commonly used greek translation they had and used by luke to indicate that salvation came and then psalm Seventy-one twenty-three, using our numbering. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul, which you have redeemed, uh, will, will do the same. So shout for joy is, again, the same word, agaliao, only in a verb form, and then redeemed is also a word for redemption used in the New Testament, lutrao. So the Old Testament has already previews, Of messianic salvation. So Luke implies that all involved heard the word, believed, were baptized, and rejoiced in God's salvation. Anybody reading Luke Acts carefully would conclude that these were adult or at least old enough children to hear, to know, believe, repent, rejoice, and be saved. They weren't saved simply because they happened to belong to a certain household. They were saved for all of the above reasons. Mainly, they believed on Christ. These other things showed genuine salvation. Wow. So Luke's telling us some things. Why do do some of these doctrines arise in church history? We, We can't allow our emotional priorities to determine what we're willing to believe and what we do believe. I honestly think... That's the problem. What we want for whatever reason, we want God to say that's the way it is, whether he did or not. And I don't know any Christian who comes to Christ, any person who comes to Christ who's a Christian who doesn't want his or her children saved. We all do. But rather than trusting God and seeing what he actually does. We come up with a doctrine to claim they are saved. We'll baptize the infants and say they're saved. And then that'll be it. Uh, That's just an idea that came in church history, but it's not what's being said here. Let's just I believe in studying church history. I've studied it a lot because I want to know how everything went astray so much. But what's binding and what's informative to us about our doctrine of salvation is Scripture. That's what somebody decided to do in church history. Because we can't just by fiat say it's a certain way and then God has to go along with what we said. It's a reverse role. Now, here's more on this rejoicing. I, I laid it out here on a slide because I knew I wanted to emphasize this because that gives us a, a, uh, the clue or key to knowing that that was persons old enough to know and understand who actually did repent and actually did rejoice in salvation. The noun form, uh, which I cited from Luke 114 and 44, and also, it's in Acts two forty six. I think we cited that. Let me see here. Somebody look up Acts two forty six. Help me out here. And in the verb form, agaliao. Luke one forty seven. Luke ten twenty one. Acts two twenty six in Acts 16, 34. And so, um, I have a definition here given by the complete word study. Dictionary of the New Testament, very good source of, the, of, of dictionary of the Greek language used in the Bible. Quote, to exult, to leap for joy. The root of the word is for leaping. Who is it that went leaping and jumping and praising God? The healed layman. Wasn't that it? Early in Acts? He went leaping and jumping and praising God. But that's a sign of salvation. that There's this joy that make you leap for joy. It's like your team finally won the World Series. If the Vikings won the Super Bowl, would anybody leap for joy in their living room? Yeah. You don't care? <laughs> I, you all become cynical, I can tell. <laughs> we all know it's not gonna happen. <laughs> well you never know. But people leap when they're excited, but here's in the context of salvation leap for joy. Show one's joy by leaping and skipping, denoting excessive or ecstatic joy and delight. Hence in the New Testament to rejoice, to exult. Often spoken of rejoicing for song and dance. So that's what's going on. So in in Acts two twenty five to twenty eight, which I already quoted, Peter cited Psalm sixteen eight through eleven, which uses this word agaliao. Peter cited that. Oh, here's that Acts three and verse eight. I just alluded to this. I'll quote it. Acts three and verse eight. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Alomai, al-lo, which is the root of Ali Agaliao in Acts sixteen thirty-four, praising. Then we did John the Baptist. And uh, here's Psalm 45, 6 and 7 Psalm 45, 6 and 7 you want to jot that down your throne O God is forever and ever a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows joy Is agoliasos in the Greek Old Testament, cited in the New? Excuse me, when they anointed someone, they literally poured oil over their heads. They were going to anoint like a king at the time of his inauguration or whatever. They poured the oil, showing that this is the chosen person to have this royal status. And the oil is poured on the head. This is God's anointed. So here we learn that Jesus is God's anointed. Christos means anointed one. Christos. And so Jesus is anointed with the oil of joy above his fellows, meaning he's the true Messiah. He's the prophet, priest, and king.
1: Yes. Could you say, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that, okay, so this rejoicing and uh, a joy is just following salvation, but could you also say that, for instance, us gathered here today, listening to the true word of God being preached, and we have that inner... Rejoicing in yeah. joy of hearing God's word—that that would be a confirmation of one's salvation.
0: Uh, I agree. I agree. The the implication isn't that this happens at the moment of salvation and then goes away, because we see that throughout the Old Testament they're rejoicing and they're exhorted to rejoice. But the rejoicing is something we're doing now. Throughout our Christian life, by God's grace, because we're looking forward to the ultimate rejoicing at the marriage Supper of the Lamb, this joyful celebration of salvation. because remember, there was a meal, there was rejoicing, and there is belief in the promises of God. That's what it looks like. and so this is appropriate to rejoice in our mutual salvation. Let me cite Hebrews 1, if you want to jot this down. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, quote, your throne of God is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with a joy of gladness above your companions. So the author of Hebrew, Hebrews is quoting Psalm, the Psalm that we just cited, and Hebrews is telling us therefore Jesus is really the, the true Messiah. Let me give you a couple more. I yeah, like one minute here psalm 13 verse 5 if you can jot these down what i just did was i looked up this word i have written up here and did a search of the the old testament for the use of this particular word for rejoice there are other words this was a little more unique and the one that's often linked with uh, (laughs) salvation psalm 13 in verse 5 i have trusted in your loving kindness my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There's rejoicing connected to salvation. Psalm seventy one twenty three. Psalm seventy one twenty three. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul which you have redeemed, so there is, I think I quoted that before. Rejoicing and redemption, two New Testament words as well, cited. That come from the Old Testament. In Psalm 95 and verse 1, Psalm 95 and verse 1, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Joy and salvation. What verse was that? Psalm 95 and verse 1. Hagaliao. shout joyfully to God. So that's the grounding of that sort of praise in the context of salvation. So next week, we'll pick up the part where some folks who aren't rejoicing show up. Civil authorities. And that's a theme that Luke will take up, the relationship between the early church and civil authorities we'll start with that next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness. And may we continually rejoice in your salvation. I pray that you'd bless uh, Eric as he speaks the word of God to us. And may our hearts be opened so that we may know better what you've said and how it applies, that we may believe and obey your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.